Hey guys, welcome back to Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. They say that those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. What about those who misunderstand or distort the past? It's not only important that we know history, but that we can get history right. As Christians, history is another segment of life that we can approach and understand from the biblical worldview to gain a proper view. I'm glad to welcome on the show Vern Poitras to discuss his newest book, Redeeming Our Thinking About History, A God-Centered Approach. Vern Poitras is Distinguished Professor of New Testament Biblical Interpretation and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania where he has taught for four decades. In addition to earning six academic degrees, he is the author of numerous books and articles on biblical interpretation, language, science, philosophy, and more. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all future episodes uh, sent directly into your inbox whenever they are published. Just visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. If you enjoyed this show, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write a review on Apple Podcasts. This will only take a minute of your time, but when you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Dr. Vern Poitras. Dr. Poitras, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm glad to have you here. As I was just telling you before we got started, I love history and I love Christian worldview and investigating and seeing all of life through the lens of the Christian worldview. So uh, I'm excited to have you on here today. We're talking about your book, Redeeming Our Thinking About History. Uh, which is presenting what you say is a God-centered approach to looking at and uh, considering, thinking about, and even writing history. Uh, you have uh, you have a lot of different books, and you have kind of several in a series that's doing this similar project where we're looking at different aspects of life through the Christian worldview. So whenever it comes to this book that you have on history, what is it that you think is unique in what you are doing uh, in this book, uh, on history. Well, as you say, I've got some other books because I believe that if we're Christians and followers of Christ seriously, then it makes a difference all across life. We have to be servants of Jesus in all of life. And, uh, because we believe that God rule, uh, created the world and he rules it, that's going to affect every uh, kind of academic discipline as well as practical things in life. And we're responsible to him uh, to, in the way we live our lives, including our intellectual lives. Um, and I've, I've focused a number of books on what might be called the intellectual life or 
academic disciplines because there is a tendency to think, well, <clears throat> it's just a matter of getting the facts straight. Well, you know, one aspect of the facts is that God rules over them. And, and it does make a difference uh, what you think is the ultimate framework for understanding. So I've tried to encourage the Christian people to think through seriously what, uh, how we should be different in our thinking than most of the world. Uh, I, I may illustrate particularly because I think there's a, 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 a serious influence from what might be called philosophical materialism. It's often identified with science, but science is really, uh, a lot of scientists have accepted an underlying framework where it's all matter in motion and we are cosmic accidents. We're bags of molecules in the end. It's a rather grim picture if you think about it uh, in terms of the, any kind of meaning and value for human life. But that picture um, uh, influences uh, the education and influences media. And it's sort of like a wave coming in that uh, pushes us, I think, uh, who belong to Christ to begin to think like the world. So I'm concerned to sort of push back at that in a, in a friendly way in the sense of I believe that that we should uh, look critically at the claims made by unbelievers in various academic disciplines, not either just rejecting the whole because God gives them uh, insights, uh, piecemeal insights. Uh, so we don't just reject everything, but neither do we swallow everything, even the things that sound plausible. And so that's part of what I'm doing. And the writing of history and the thinking about history is one area to do it, and I think an important area. Now, I professionally, I teach New Testament. So I'm involved with an area of history, namely what happened, what happened in the life of Jesus, what happened in his death and in his resurrection. The resurrection is an obvious area where, uh, as a Christian believer, I'm going to differ from people who think it's all matter in motion. If God rules history personally, then he can bring about events that are surprising to us, but they're planned long ago by him, and they're not out of accord with his law because his word is the law. So that's a, you know, that's a prime example, but it, it extends to the analysis of the Bible's claims about uh, the events that happened. Because the typical unbeliever, we have lots of scholars, biblical scholars who are not really believers in the divine inspiration of the Bible. So they're trying to sift what did and did not happen. Well, <clears throat> that's a very different stance than what you take if you say the Bible is the word of God. Yeah. And so what it says happened, happened. Now the Bible can have fictional stories like Jesus' parables. We don't claim they happened because they don't claim to have happened. But mm -hmm. that's, that's the approach with respect to the Bible. And it matters to to Christian believers that they realize that a lot of the things they're hearing around them presuppose that the Bible is just like any other book from 
ancient times. And so you, uh, they, and, and of course, if they don't believe miracles happen because they don't believe in a God of miracles, then they're going to discount all of that. That's with respect to the Bible. But then also with respect to history outside the Bible, our attitude is different, though it's more subtle because God can do unusual things in healing people or in the spread of the gospel, uh, even beyond the pages of the Bible. And we have to be open to that, although we also have to be realistic about human nature that people can exaggerate whether they're believers or unbelievers. They can sometimes engage in wishful thinking. So the, the attitude toward history outside the Bible differs partly because we, uh, the Bible instructs us about human nature, right? That human nature uh, can, uh, it can and does sometimes involve deep sin and that people can lie and they can have wishful thinking, but also there's much to be enjoyed and much to be appreciated because God gives grace not only to those who are saved through Christ, but even beyond that, he, he blesses people with good health, for instance, or with the sun shining upon them, uh, as the Bible illustrates in, in, Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, that he makes the sun rise on the, the good and the evil. So that's an instance of blessing that is enjoyed by everybody. Well, history is that way. So uh, what we uh, look at is to be looked at through uh, the understanding that God rules uh, all the events of history. So that's, that's part of what I want to do to enable Christians to think in a Christian manner when they're thinking about either history in the Bible or outside. Yeah, and so I think that a lot of the listeners of this podcast are going to be familiar with uh, the terms worldview and presuppositions and what it means to consider these things whenever we look at uh, history, science, or whatever else. But for those who these topics might be new to them and they're new to this kind of thinking, can you just uh, take a step back from uh, uh, take a step back in terms of explaining what it means to consider presuppositions whenever we are receiving uh, historical storytelling or, or analysis and so on. Just what does it mean to think through a worldview lens whenever we're approaching these different topics? Yes. Well, people across, human beings across the face of the world are not all the same. And the fundamental distinction, according to the Bible itself, is between those who serve the living and true God and those who are still in rebellion against him. And that makes a difference in how we think. Because if you're not serving God, then you have a God substitute and you have a different view of the world. Now that can take many forms in detail, but the one I illustrated already was philosophical materialism where it's all matter in motion. That's a different worldview with a different set of assumptions and it means, for instance, people are not going to believe in the spirit world. Uh, it, it be uh, neither in God nor in finite spirits, uh, angels and demons. 
my wife was a missionary in Taiwan before we were married. And Taiwan is a, is a country where there's a lot of worship of the spirit world, uh, ancestor worship in particular. And there's demon activity. There, there's demonic miracles. People in the West tend not to believe it, but that's because we're, we're influenced by a surrounding worldview, maybe in spite of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, so this set of assumptions, the fundamental distinction is between do you serve the true God or not? But then further down, there are other kinds of distinctions. For instance, not only philosophical materialism is ripe in the West, but new age thinking where the world is somehow identical with God and you are God in your inner self if only you knew it. Well, that too is antagonistic to a Christian worldview. And it leads to a different kind of thinking about history because these people do try to be in contact with the spiritual dimension of the world, however they define it. Um, But they're not thinking of the course of history as governed by an all-powerful God and with divine purposes. Mm -hmm. A personal God, I should say, because pantheism always ends up an impersonal, like the the force of uh, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Though that was, I think, kind of a humorous thing. Is known to be, we know it's fictional, but the idea of a force pervading something is an impersonal ultimate. When you think about it, well, that's a different worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you a, al- yeah. Go ahead. You also you also have people who I think have taken on board fragments of a Christian worldview, for instance, the the respect for human beings who are not well off, who are part of various minorities. That's actually a Christian thing because we're made in the image of God, but it's been secularized and then becomes a religious force of its own that that, um, leads to uh, progressive politics so so there's there's differences there too we could go on and on about that uh, but uh, my point is and uh, that that how one thinks about the world as a whole is going to influence what you think is significant in the course of events and how do you sift between true and false claims about the past hmm. Interesting. And so when we consider the Christian worldview in history, we can look at how Christianity has had a major influence on the development of science throughout history, on the development of uh, of even philosophy and of uh, literature, art, and so on. We can see the Christian worldview working its way out and transforming society in these different ways. Where we look at the history of history, in other words, how people have thought about and, and talked about and written about history throughout time, uh, can we see an influence of the Christian worldview on the ways that people considered history throughout history? Yes, it definitely will. If you go, for instance, to the polytheistic societies of the Old Testament or the Greco-Roman world, you have people who believe often in a kind of impersonal fate that things will happen that are just 
nobody can do anything about. Mm. But it's impersonal. And then on top of that, you have what might be called finite gods. You have uh, spirit forces that are involved in things. And if a battle goes wrong or if a voyage goes wrong, it's because you didn't propitiate the spirit of the sea or the spirit of the war. And so your way of thinking about events is deeply connected with serving multiple spirits. Well, Christianity came on Judaism before it with the teaching of there's only one true God, right? And mm -hmm. Christianity uh, spread that teaching as well as spread redemption in Christ, which renews our thinking. Romans 12 talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. We're renewed in thinking, and we know that there's one God who governs history with purpose, and we know that people are intensely valuable, even people of minorities and despised groups, because they're made in the image of God. That was something radically different from the pharaohs of Egypt. The pharaohs were gods and the slaves were subhuman. So you, it, it, people don't realize often <laughs> the degree to which worldviews can differ Hmm. from the, the Christian worldview that is, as you say, heavily influenced the Western world. So with the belief in the one true God who rules everything, there comes an understanding that whatever you see is the hand of God's providence. Hmm. So it's providential view of history in a broad sense. Now in my book, I take up the fact that there can be both reactions to that of people who say, well, um, there's, uh, we, it's completely inscrutable. We really can't say anything about God's purposes. And people who are presumptuous, who too quickly will tell you what are God's purposes. So Job's friends are an obvious example within the Bible itself, but it's a kind of warning for everybody else. Just because Job is suffering, the, the, his friends thought they knew what the meaning was, what the purpose of God, namely that God was punishing Job for some obvious sin and that he had to repent. Mm -hmm. But they were wrong. <laughs> so the fact is, God is infinite. We are finite. And unless God tells us the meaning of some of his works, then we have to be cautious. That's the one side. But I think the pendulum has gone almost too far the other way uh, since, well, into the 18th and 19th centuries in the West, where things have been secularized and people no longer want to think about God at all. And God is the controller of history, and God is having purposes. And so it's just one event after another with no inherent meaning. Mm. And meaning is only created by human beings. Now that tends that that gets bleak too. And the history historians, even secular historians who don't believe in God, that's historians who write interesting history, write about purposes, mm -hmm. their human purposes, but they have to have a certain amount of understanding of human nature, both in its potential for good and its potential for evil, for sin. Somebody who is Pollyannaish, right, is everything is okay and 
everybody is basically good. They're not going to be able to deal with with figures in history who were cruel. The Assyrians, the ancient Assyrians, were were cruel, and uh, and their governments in our own day that are cruel. And you have to come to grips with the fact that evil is there and it's radical. So that's an instance, you see, where a Christian worldview actually helps us to face the radical character of evil because we have an answer, a long range answer. We don't, you know, we can't solve the problems immediately. We know that Christ has to rule and solve them, but we have a long range answer, which means that we that we need not conceal from ourselves the fact that people can be really intensely evil uh, sometimes. And uh, and we, we don't conceal from ourselves the possibility of hypocrisy, right? Of people who put on a face of yeah. being good people, but they're completely selfish inside. So, and, and that's, part of a, of understanding what's happening in history and even what's happening in our local history, right, in our own lives. Yeah. To understand human nature in its badness as well as the potential for good is a very significant clue. Yeah. But we're, but we're not going to understand that except in relation to God who is the standard for good and evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just as you're talking and thinking of all these different ways that that a Christian worldview equips us to really think well about whether it's ancient, ancient history or more current events, like you were saying, the the reality of evil and the universality of sin. Uh, I was thinking of Souls and Ensign's famous line that the line dividing good and evil runs between through every human heart, and uh, and then also the reality of uh, of a God who is there who is personal and who is intervening in human affairs. I think that's also something unique in the Christian view of God that is very relevant to how we consider history versus other religions, which say that either, uh, well, there maybe there's no God or there's a God who's impersonal or that there's a God who is perhaps personal, but so distant to be unknowable and uninvolved in human affairs. Yeah, right. Uh, Islam, for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, it has a distant God. You take Hinduism, that's tightly connected with the caste system in India, even though people are trying to cast it off. The caste system is based on the idea of, of reincarnation. That is that your works, good works in this life, if they're good enough, you're going to be in another life where you'll have a higher position in the scale. <laughs> uh, and if not, you may have a, you may be reincarnated as a as a cow or an insect even. Um, but if it, so, the outcasts, the untouchables, were treated like dirt by the upper castes because they thought these people are guilty from previous lives. So very different. And and it's it's partly the influence of Christianity on Gandhi, where he he repudiated that system, even though he wasn't a Christian himself. He didn't have the the uh, ultimate basis to do it, but at least he did it. <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, they, there's lots of examples of that. But uh, one of the things I do in my book is to discuss something more personal that our church has. Uh, 
a, a um, an internet prayer chain where we send out requests. We send them into the the central office, and they send it out to whoever is on the the list, the email mm-hmm. list, so we can pray for people. And then, very often, we'll get answers to prayer, and people will thank people for praying for them and announce, you know, here the Lord is has healed so and so, or is resolved an issue in the family, or whatever it is. But that kind of thing is important for reminding us God is involved in with little people, right? You think of the history of World War II and and the defeat of the Nazis. Well, it was God's doing, ultimately, I believe, to defeat the Nazis because they were evil. And, and so we can thank God for something like that. But we also, it's not just the big things, but it's the little things. And here, I think most of us, you know, are not... <laughs> We're not going to be writing the history of of, uh, the next uh, big war, but we will be dealing with our own lives. So I think that's an important note. But but also then when people uh, are professional history writers, how do they go about it? That too, their their mindset is going to be influenced by their worldview. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's a great reminder that uh, that you know, when we read about God working through history, to be reminded that He also works in our lives as well. Uh, one of my favorite things about reading uh, church history and reading through how um, the, the preservation of Scripture throughout time, or how the the church would survive through different times of persecution and hardship, and just reflect on God's providence and all those things, gives me such trust. And what he's doing today, yeah, right. Yeah. There's the the primary record is of course in Scripture itself. There's so many times where God delivers His people mm-hmm. through uh, through the past, and uh, that's so precious. But you're right that if we are attuned to God's goodness through our reading of Scripture, then we can extrapolate outward and see. Give thanks to him, whatever happens. You know mm-hmm. that's uh, that's the scriptural uh, commandment. Uh, be always uh, giving thanks, and the the materialistic worldview in the world of secular history is not going to help us because it's just going to say, "Well, things just happen," right? Mm-hmm. And and Christ, as Christians, we have to wrestle with the fact that bad things happen. <laughs> and and the Bible does address that. And it addresses, as I said with Job, the the difficulties is the fact that righteous people, comparatively, I mean, they're not perfect, but uh, Jesus was perfectly righteous and he suffered. Well, so we're going to suffer too. And mm-hmm. that's not happy news for Americans who want to have all peace and prosperity, but it's a, it's a very healthy thing that the Bible is giving us to uh, to reckon with the fact that God, the good God uh, who gave us Christ for our salvation, is a God who disciplines his children, who sometimes brings them through suffering. Hmm. One of the things that I thought was interesting in the book was whenever you wrote about these, uh, I guess I'll say categories that are helpful in, in, in approaching historical events and understanding them. And you gave these categories 
from the teaching on perspectivalism. Uh, from you and uh, John Frame have written about this, a way of understanding the Trinity, but then how it can also work out into understanding ethics. And you also apply it to history. Can you understand this Trinitarian uh, understanding and how we can use it to, uh, to, to read history? I see. Well, yeah, that's a good question, but not an easy question. Uh, so God is one God who is three persons. That's taught in the Bible, right? The Father and the Son and the Spirit. And uh, that's unique, right? There's no model. There's no picture that captures who God is perfectly uh, within our minds. That's what you say right off in order to understand God is unique. But God does show, I believe, reflections of himself in the way in which he works in the world. So one of those ways is one of the triads of John Frame for ethics, a normative, situational, and existential perspective on ethics. The normative is saying, what are the norms? What are the, the, um, the what is the source of authority by which we evaluate a human behavior? Well, the norms come from God, but especially from God the Father, who is preeminently source of authority. And then there's a situation. Well, the situation is governed by God, preeminent by but the Son who executes the plan of the Father. And the existential perspective is also called the personal perspective. It looks at our motives. Well, it's the Holy Spirit preeminently who is present in us and who is this inspector of our motives. So those three perspectives are derivative, John Frame pointed that out uh, originally, and I've uh, picked up on it. They're derivative or reflective of the Trinity. But now they're useful in our understanding of history because any event can be evaluated from all three perspectives at once, and they interlock. You really can't have one without the other, just as you can't have one person of the Trinity, except in relation to the others, they, they belong together. So that's true of our analysis of events. Uh, so I talk about three aspects in doing history, namely the events themselves, which are the part of the situation, and the meaning of the events, which is closely related to the norms, because the meaning is, well, what are the purposes? What do we do with this? How do we think about it? So there's, it's closely related to the norm. And the third, aspect in any event is the people and their motives. What are they doing and why are they doing it? So you can see that history and analysis of history always involves all three of those. That is, if it's human history, I mean, you can talk about the history of of the sun or something like that, but typically we're talking about human history. Then you have, you've got to have people who have motives and those motives matter. It's not just, as I say, you know, clumps of molecules. It's human meaningful motives. And there's meanings to the event or else why bother, right? The meanings ultimately that go back to God's plan, but also human meanings. And then there's events themselves. There's things in the situation that we can observe. 
So those, th those three things have to be there. And all historians, part of my argument is all historians, whether they're believers in the one true God or not, have to believe that all those three things are there. In practice, that is, they have to. They have to believe in all three of those things and in their interaction and harmonious interaction because else you're just going to get chaos. Well, the har harmony is due to the fact that there's a harmony between the three persons of the Trinity. That's what it goes back to. So I try to show that, in fact, every person who's thinking about history is secretly dependent on God on the Trinitarian God and on this harmony that God brings about in the world between the meanings and the events and the persons who are acting. And you write about what happens whenever someone rejects God as the foundation for seeing these interlocking features of meanings, people, and events. And what you write is that the only option is to elevate one of these things above the right. others. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, people are inconsistent. So some people do a good job in spite of bad presuppositions, in spite of bad assumptions. They kind of ignore them half the time. But you're right that the tendency would be if you don't believe in transcendent personal God, who is the source of all three of these aspects, to make one of the aspects itself into a kind of ultimate God that will explain everything. So, for instance, if you start with the events themselves, then what you get is just meaningless events. You get just one event after another. And there are some forms of history writing called chronicle, which are like that, basically. You know, it's like a diary if you just listed the events without commenting on them. Most diaries, people, you know, express their their personal feelings, which gets into the, uh, one of the other aspects. So you can have just events, or you can have just meanings. And that takes place with what I call the, the grand schemes for interpreting history. The Marxism, for instance, is a grand scheme that can tell you if you believe them, <laughs> which I don't. Uh, though they're fragments of truth, uh, they will tell you what the meaning of history is, that it's a succession, it's a sort of struggle of different forms of uh, labor and different forms of ownership uh, from one system, feudalism to capitalism, to uh, national socialism, to a communist utopia. And uh, so this is inevitable, allegedly, uh, the original communists, Marx and Engels, uh, saw this as the pattern of history. Well, mm -hmm. that's a grand scheme, right? It's a grand uh, interpretation that shows you the meaning of history, except it's wrong. <laughs> and and what, what I point out and what many other people have pointed out, not simply for Marxism, but some of the other grand schemes, is that they're too grand for their own good, right? They, they, they have, they always have to deal with recalcitrant events that don't fit into the scheme. And of course, one of the disasters of communism was that the communist utopia never arrived. It was just more uh, big state totalitarian oppression that was even worse than the preceding capitalist system. And uh, so they, you know, the, the scheme uh, 
it was appealing to people. I think it was actually a religious appeal. It was an appeal for a godlike understanding. In the end, only God has. You see, if we are Christians, we ought to be resisting that kind of thing and saying, well, God knows all the details and all the meanings, but we don't. And it's presumptuous to try to build a big scheme that will explain everything. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's an example. The third one is the the focus on the existential perspective of the starting point is people. And postmodernism, some features of that are akin to it because what they do is to say, each person has to create his own meanings. There's no meaning out in the world that would be a transcendent meaning, right? Because they've given up on God. So you just create your own meanings. And there are as many interpretations of the events as there are interpreters. So you get a plurality, an irreducible plurality of meanings. And nobody has any grip on an absolute meaning or an absolute truth anymore. But you can see how that's alien to Christianity, too, because God speaks to us in the Bible. God tells us things, not everything, but a lot of things that give us permanent and solid understanding of who we are, where we're going, what is the purpose of our existence, all those big questions. The postmodernists can't answer any of them, and if they're honest, they admit that they can't answer them. You just have to create your own meanings, which is, Mm -hmm. in the end, rather bleak. Because you know that you're just creating them, right? And they'll they'll disappear when you die. Yeah. Well, the subjectivists don't believe in uh, in, in objective truth, right. uh, and so objective truth, is, if it is there, is true at the time of whatever event we're studying in history, as it is now. And so, if there is a God who is there who gives us truth, then He gives us truth that is uh, that, that that is true at all time. So if you reject that God and you reject with it a a solid basis for truth, well, then, of course, yeah, there's nothing that can be truly known about any other given time than what we exist in now. And then even that's questionable if we truly know the truth about what we exist in now in the the framework of subjectivism. Uh, Like you said, I think it ends up leading people to uh, to, uh, nihilism. Yeah, and I think this... This modern, I hope it's a fad, but it's a religious fad, I think, where everybody has the right to define themselves with respect to gender, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. are you male and female or non-binary or furry? That's really everybody creating, everybody becoming his own God. And it's what it's one alternative once you've lost sight of the fact there is a true God who's already defined us. Yeah. Yeah. And as we're talking, I think it's uh, making me, uh, helping me to to realize something that I've always sort of, um, uh, in, I don't know what the right word for it would be, um, subconsciously thought, which is that the way that someone views history can tell you a lot about the rest of their worldview. It seems, yeah. it, it's, it's a keystone issue that reveals to you the way that they, that they view the present themselves and uh, these worldview questions, because uh, because it, it, it really reveals a lot. Right. Yeah. And I would, 
I agree absolutely, and I would add that I think uh, we we have leading cultural uh, 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 individuals who are talking very much about painting the picture of a worldview. But for many people, the ordinary people, they don't think it through. It's like osmosis, right? They're absorbing things, whether it's from faith, Facebook or whether it's from the school they're in or whether it's whatever it is around them, the news that they listen to. The news is not just facts, it's interpretation of facts. And so they're absorbing uh, elements of a worldview without realizing it. And and so sometimes it, you actually have to do some exploration to uh, to find out where people are coming from. And do you think that there are, uh, whether it's institutions or people who are giving, uh, do you think that they are using history or at least bad interpretations of history as a manipulative tool to shape and form people right now? Yes, definitely, because um, uh, what we're dealing with a lot, we're dealing with partly with with um, people who have given up on meaning and maybe who are who are uh, just taking trips on illegal drugs because they're they can find no meaning. They've given up. But for many people, I think it is there is a moral appeal political activism or activism in some cause, why would you, why not just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? I mean, that's a scriptural quotation from, you know, the Bible saying what happens when you have no God, right? Mm-hmm. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why not just do that? Why bother about this moral fervor? Well, it, it is a, a, a fervor that's looking for salvation, that's looking for for righteousness. But the trouble is you can't have that without a vision for for the meaning of history. You know, the purposes are going somewhere. Why are they valuable purposes? What are we out to achieving? So many times those larger purposes may not be discussed openly, but they're still there. So I think you're right that that people are, uh, and the use of accounts of the past to talk about those purposes or the failure of past purposes in order to rouse people to activity in the present. But for a Christian, I think we partly have to stand back from that and say, look, uh, I've been told who I am. I've been told where history is going, the new heaven and the new earth, right? And I've been told to serve Christ now without thinking I'm the center of the world, I'm going to make some big revolution. And no, it's it, it, we can be content to serve Christ wherever he puts us and not think we have to save the world because Christ is the savior of the world. Mm, that's good. It doesn't mean we can't be active in, in whatever sphere yeah. uh, God places us in and try to serve him and try to influence other people. But but there, there's a kind of, I think, false fervor of people who think I'm on some big movement, which is essential to the salvation of the world. Well, no, it's Christ who is the Savior. We, we have to come back to that. Mm. 
And I, I think that those uh, these people who have a desire to see justice or a moral vision to give their life meaning, I think that it's often based upon, if it's not upon a Christian worldview and one that's being uh, put forward by the culture right now, I think it's based upon a very different view of what is evil than what we present in the Christian worldview. Uh, because it, it, what they'll do is they'll point at uh, atrocities and evils, which we might say are appropriately named atrocities and evils, but then rather, rather than pointing to the reality of human sin, which exists across the board in all of us, they start to divide human society up between uh, different tribes. Groups of people, it's easy to point at and say, well, because of their attributes, they are the bad ones and they still exist to this day. And so we can still fight the oppressors today. I think, I think that's the real danger with it is that it, it ends up dividing people and to these, uh, these man-made categories, uh, and can justify more wickedness today, uh, because it's based upon a false view of what is, you know, good and true. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, the Marxist, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's now in the 19th century already that they were they were putting forth their views. They were saying that the evil is the evil of a system. If we could just have a revolution and change the system, then we would eliminate the evil and we would get this utopia. But they didn't understand the human heart. They didn't understand that not only some of the capitalists were heartless and and you know they were pointed out as being evil and the proletarians were the oppressed and they were the good guys except they had sinful hearts too mm-hmm. <laughs> and the leaders they, they, their sin was there in in the desire for power and control and uh, uh, and you know the the uh, the result of communist revolution was never the utopia, but it was yeah, because the sin was in the human heart. And I think that's a very important aspect of the Christian worldview to understand. It, it, but it's a very hard aspect because we don't want to admit it. <laughs> Each of us, with respect to himself or herself, that's very painful. So if only we could get rid of our sins just by changing the system. I mean, that's, it's a false salvation, but it's a very attractive salvation because it's, it sounds so much easier than dealing with the, with the horrors of the human heart, mm-hmm. yeah. of one's own heart. Yeah. So history is important, not just because of the events that lead up to today and the, the consequences we experience today for, because of the events of the past, but history is also important because of the way we think about history and how that will then translate into our actions for shaping tomorrow. But I think there's a lot of people who question the relevance of history today, not recognizing these things. As we come to a close, just one last question. If you could just give your pitch for why is it important for our listeners to, uh, to value history and to think about it well? Why is it relevant? Why is it important? You're right, because God says it's important, right? The the Bible is full of history that has a meaning. And, of course, the end point of history 
is the spread of the glory of God to fill the new heavens and the new earth. So it's central in God's own exposition of the meaning of the world and our meaning as human beings. We're headed somewhere. Um, it's simply that, you know, what I come back to again and again is to say, you've got to read your Bible. <laughs> you've got to... You've got to take seriously the fact that this is giving us not only answers of this, the, these big questions, but answers that differ from the answers of, of other systems around us. Hmm. That's great. Well, once again, the book we've been talking about today and discussing is Redeeming Our Thinking About History. I'll have it linked in the show notes and in the description below so that if any of you are interested in getting the book, like I said, I've been reading it. And if you are someone who enjoys and appreciates history, enjoys Christian worldview, this is a book for you. So I highly recommend it. Uh, go pick it up at the link in the show notes so you can get your copy and start reading it today. Dr. Poitras, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of Filter. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. And so thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed the time with us. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the